Hello and welcome to this ACR Review podcast brought to you by the Lupus Forum. My name is Ed Vitale. I'm at the University of Leeds in the UK and I'm the chair of the Lupus Forum. And today I'm once more joined by my colleagues and friends who were also at ACR this year. Professor Vivica Strand is an adjunct adjunct clinical professor of immunology and rheumatology at Stanford University School of Medicine, and Cindy Aronau, who's director of the Clinical Autoimmunity Center of Excellence at the Feinstein Institute for Medical Research in New York. So welcome, both of you. Thank you. Nice to to see you. Yeah, nice nice to see you face-to-face in California and, and online again now. Um, so there was lots of lupus content at this ACR, I think, um, and we've captured quite a bit of that. We put the top abstracts in our highlights brochure and in our daily highlights. Uh, and in this podcast, we're going to discuss the lupus data that really stood out for us personally at the conference uh, and the things that we think are going to be defining clinical practice in, in the near future or, or further off. So, um, Fibica, do you want to kick us off and start telling us what you found most interesting or most thought provoking at the conference? Well, I think probably everyone found that CAR T cells were the star of the conference. And it's really interesting because basically it's 15 patients across three indications. We have nine lupus patients and three systemic sclerosis and three uh, inflammatory myositis patients treated by Georg Schett's group and Erlangen. And then we have uh, some other posters and abstracts that, that talked about either those same patients or a few more. What's it's already gotten to the point that that three U.S. companies are busily working on CAR T's in lupus and lupus nephritis. Uh, Cavaletta uh, had had a poster, and so did Kyberna, and so did Novartis. And Cavaletta was actually reviewing patients that had been treated along with Shet and talking about changes in TNF and IL six that went down, and IL seven and BAF that went up. And there was a lot of discussion about, well, how long, how far out are these patients and how long would this remission, drug-free remission act? And basically the Erlangen group has 10 patients out to about a year and four out to about two years with they're all, all seemingly in, in complete remission um, with the longest being two and a half years of follow-up. I think Georg Shedd is is really modeling that something like three or four years will be about the time that they'll stay in remission. But as of right now, it's a big question. There's also a question too, such as uh, manufacturing um, techniques and timing. Novartis made a point that their manufacturing was more rapid and therefore you would see the depletion sooner and then you would see repletion faster. And that maybe that would be uh, different and, uh, shall we say, more positive. Um, Kyverna had a couple of patients uh, that were also treated with lupus nephritis and follow up very briefly. And like the Novartis patients, seemed to be doing well. And then there was a, a nice demonstration of vaccination responses that were maintained in the airline group of patients which gives us some confidence that we're depleting, shall we say, the right cells and not depleting all of the memory cells 
and long-lived plasma, plasma cells and plasmablasts. But there's a lot of question about this. And personally, I've never remembered any, any excitement about something that was tried in a total of 15 patients before. And I wonder what you think, Ed. Yeah, exactly. I was going to say, I'm, I'm, I'm pleased to hear that you're slightly cautious about the hype uh, because I am a bit too. And partly it's that level of evidence. You know, I, I, I remember when we first used rituximab, David Eisenberg's <laughs> first paper was 2002. And he said, five patients, B-cell depletion, 18 months remission, I've cured lupus. Like, that's 20 years ago. So, um, you know, yeah. I, I, I just have this slight feeling of deja vu. And it's not, but I don't I don't mean to be too, like, facetious or anything. Like, I do think it'll be an advance. I think for some people, this will be a lot better therapy. But I think I have a slightly sort of theoretical objection to the idea that this is the way to cure lupus personally actually um that you know yes it's true that the problem with rituximab is it didn't deplete b cells right. deep enough. Right. Right. lots of people told me that and actually i i knew because it was my thesis but, um, <laughs> <laughs> but uh but um so this should get deplete deeper into tissues. And we know that the repertoire reset you get after rituximab, at least in RA, isn't always complete. And this should do that a bit better. So that, that is quite encouraging. But I think the problem is, is I think this is all predicated on the idea that the reason you've got lupus is because one day a B cell had some random event that made it auto-reactive <laughs> under some environmental hit, I suppose, or multiple environmental hits. And then once that had happened, that mistake couldn't be forgotten because of constant antigens, so they proliferate. And, and therefore, that if you just do a one-off depletion that's deep enough, you'll reset all of that and you'll restore tolerance, which is a bit of an incomplete... It's not crazy, but it's a bit of an incomplete theory of lupus. Because like most of the genetic susceptibility of lupus isn't in lymphocytes, it's like it's in an innate immunity, and some of it's not even in the immune system at all. You know, it's like right. DNA re damage repair and clearance and stuff like that. And like, so I don't know how you can possibly clear that with a one-off depletion of B cells, no matter how deep you go. Um, you know, it's like the lupus is in the soil. Um, and, you know, there was that model, there was that paper in Nature by Carola Vinuesa, where it was a TLR7 mutation, which basically induces a load of extra follicular B cells and gives you lupus. And that's not really kind of antigen specific, like the way the car, that, that'll just recur. Um, so there are some things, you know, there are things I want to see really to convince me. So I, I, I suspect it'll be there's a certain type of patient where this is the right thing. Yeah, I I, I do yeah. think that we'll be using it in some patients. Yeah. 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 So, so you know, you know, just to build on what you just said is that so the autoimmunity goes way back in terms of the B cell lineage. And when we know in, the, in um, normal uh, patients is or healthy controls is that those autoimmune cells are uh, deleted as at certain checkpoints during B cell maturation, and mm. whereas in uh, lupus patients they they are not. And what I don't understand is how those those check what happens with those checkpoints is can suddenly be abrogated. You know, and as you said, you know, that there are environmental triggers, there, there are other pieces, but 
but just um, getting rid of all the B cells is not going to necessarily um, get rid of the what happens in an autoimmune individual in a patient with who has um, a predisposition to autoimmunity um, and is not going to be depleting those uh, B cells as they mature during their uh, normal uh, maturation. And you know, I think we know that um, you know lupus is incredibly heterogeneous, and there are you know many roads right. to Rome. And you know, this may be a, a great uh, treatment for some, but it, you know, fifteen patients is still you know just a little bit, and I and we just don't know if this is going to work, um, how it's going to work for all, plus how it's going to work in other patients of different ethnicities and different well ethnicities. yeah so we don't we don't really know who would be the right patients for this uh whether I, we're talking I, about I autoimmune disease or lupus and the yeah. other thing though that has come out is that these patients have tolerated this uh, lymphodepletion and then car t-cell administration better by and large than the patients who've been treated with the hematologic and oncologic uh, cancers, you know, there's very relatively minor CRS, cytokine release syndrome, uh, yeah. treated, I think, with tocilizumab in about three or four of these patients. There was only one ICANS. So perhaps this is something that, that will go forward as something that we can perhaps, quote, reset to some extent the mm -hmm. immune system, but it's obviously going to be highly individualistic. And I think choosing the right patients is going to be at least uh, one of the biggest challenges. Yeah. No, and the other thing that we have not seen yet it is um, the vaccination response. So, you know, they talk about um, preservation of um, protective antibodies. And they're calling those vaccination antibodies, which I think is a little misleading. You know, they're not. Well, Shet, Shet did do a vaccination of a couple of patients. I, there that were three was in patients. There, there, there were three patients. Um, you know, one was mm -hmm. COVID, and I forget what the other two were. But again, the numbers are truly, truly small. <laughs> small. You're right. One other thing on CAR T, actually, just to say that it was a bit interesting, it was kind of a bit newer to me, was that everything we've been talking about there is CD19 CAR T, which is just trying to deplete all your B cells. But people are developing some rather more interesting ways right. to right. use CAR T technology with different targets, some of them very interesting. So there was there was a Chinese, these are much earlier phased kind of animal and in vitro and stuff, but there was a Chinese study that was combined mm -hmm. CD19 and BCMA, which makes it hit plasma cells a bit more, which might be more effective, but might come with some right. safety issues, perhaps. There was one against CD40 ligand. Um, there was an RA study that was targeting fibroblasts. Um, and there's one, I mean, there's one that was actually last year, but I remembered it, which well, there were they were actually custom designing CAR T's to a specific mm -hmm. antigen for that patient. You know, actually taking somebody's autoantibodies, kind of working out how to program the CAR T's to tolerate against or, or to, to block that autoantigen, which is pretty, pretty mind-blowing technology. So I guess that's, the, that, that's another well, interesting angle. Kyverna is working on allogeneic T cells. And I think if that happens, 
than this idea that uh, CAR T cell therapy, $400,000, $500,000 per patient would plummet because it could be done in much, much more efficiently and cheaply. Yeah. But again, we'll have to see. Just yeah. using, yeah. So there's more to it than just super powerful B cell depletion. Yeah, you know, and there's some uh, companies that are looking to make sort of where you don't need to um, if you release off the patient's T cells and you could have an off the shelf uh, uh, CAR T product that you could just infuse into anybody trying to um, eliminate, you know, that need to apheresis and to make it a lot quicker. Right. Um, yeah. You know, so there's still so much that we have to learn about this and including how well it's going to work in the entire population. Yeah. What were your other highlights then? So uh, there were there were some other interesting things. I think uh, we've seen a lot of plus and minus with various uh, jacks in lupus, but upadacitinib, they presented a phase two that they'd done with a combination of upadacitinib 30 milligrams high dose with a B cell uh, with basically a BTK inhibitor. But yeah. then when they did the interim analysis, they found out that it was essentially the upadacitinib 30 milligram dose that was the effective dose. And they're planning to take that to phase three. But the data looked quite good in that group that got the 30 milligrams. Uh, and essentially we saw very nice evidence of inhibition of B cell markers of activation. And perhaps then this one will be a jack that will move forward. Yeah. Yeah, I and then I, we it, that, okay. and, and those data again looked really promising, almost too good to be true, but um, you know I think the proof will be what happens in the phase three. Right, right. Then uh, Novartis has this uh, ianolumab, which is an afucosylated BAFR monoclonal antibody. So it it both uh, kills B cells and also inhibits. B cell reactivity, BAFR binding to the receptor. Uh, so they, they show very nicely the B cells are depleted, the interferon gene signature goes down, and their phase two data, although small, look quite good. So that will be moving on into phase three as yeah, well. This is one of the ones I was going to say, it's one of my highlights actually, but it's good to mention now because. This is the other interesting thing I thought about the CAR-T story is that the monoclonals are getting better and better. Aren't they? The, you know, depleting B cells with monoclonals, this ENLUMAB, there's also a binutuzumab, um, and those, those are getting better and better. And so therefore, is the relative benefit of a cellular therapy become a bit less? Because obviously monoclonals, you can have as often as you want and very straightforward. The ENLUMAB is subcut. So, yeah. 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 Then there's a TLR78 Affymetron, and that was just an early phase uh, 1B study from BMS, but, but they showed very nicely in patients with CLE and SCLE, classy A responses. And so that will be moving forward. They also showed some nice classy data with Ducravacitinib in those patients that had cutaneous disease. So those were pretty exciting. I, uh, I think that this has been better for lupus than really any of our previous meetings in the context of therapies that are moving into, into later trials. 
good data with obinutuzumab as well, which was from the previous phase two. Yeah. Right. So uh, maybe it's time to hear your, your highlights, Cindy. What were the best sessions for you? So um, I, I think that there, there were so many good things that were presented. Um, and it wasn't an abstract, but um, there was a widely attended uh, session um, early on with overflow into two rooms looking at um, early lupus and disease modifying anti-lupus drugs. Um, and in the first, um, the first speaker, Dave Karp, um, was talking about early or pre-lupus. And he asked the question, can lupus be, prevent be prevented? To which he answered, well, yes and no. And um, he spoke about staging patients with lupus, somewhat akin to type one diabetes, where patients with relevant autoantibodies are labeled as stage one. And then, then he suggested, you know, stage one with auto autoantibodies to nuclear antigens, then stage two and three as they progressed uh, to experiencing clinical symptoms, and then to actually fulfilling uh, true classification. And, you know, and saying that the advantage of staging we give patients a diagnosis, a, a label, which many, many of them want to know, as well as you know, if we had um, an, a new potential inter interventions and treatments to potentially stop the progression of patients actually developing a full stage three lupus. Um, the second talk in this session was given by Anka Askenaz, where she um, discussed and defined a really important uh, topic um, such as disease modifying drugs in lupus um, and proposed uh, and that medications be considered truly modifying if they could demonstrate efficacy at three different points in time. And initially during the first year that they could control disease activity, prevent flares, uh, allow for steroid reduction, um, maintain this at another point during years two and five and then show that at after year five of treatment that they actually prevented or slowed accrual of damage. Uh, so I think the concept of disease modification is one novel, but really important. And she then made the case that hydroxychloroquine, uh, belimumab and anaphrolimab fulfilled these criteria. And you know, really surprisingly, we don't have data. There's not enough published data to support labeling all of the other immunosuppressives that we use and love um, as disease modifying. And then briefly, the last talk by Maria Delar um, focused on renal interventions and highlighted you know, the holistic approach that there are both immunologic and uh, non-immunologic pathogenic mechanisms in lupus nephritis and how important it is to, <clears throat> to target both um, and emphasize diagnosing and treating early, um, close monitoring, you wanna reduce the occurrence of renal flare, suggested that uh, belimumab and phase, uh, the phase two anaphrolimab data, you know, that these may be uh, the disease modifying in lupus nephritis and um, she um, she used the term uh, time is kidney, which I think I'm going to adopt as I speak with patients and trainees about the absolute need to uh, treat and maintain control of lupus kidney disease. You know, so 
I I go to lots of sessions, you know, at the ACR, but I think that this was, you know, really important and really novel and just, you know, one of these sessions where I'm taking things home and really thinking about it to discuss with my colleagues. Uh, I agree. I heard so. I unfortunately I couldn't go to that one, but I heard everyone talking about that that session about yeah. early intervention. Actually, I've also worked a bit on preclinical lupus myself, um, and this you know this concept of prevention. And yeah, you know, the main thing I notice is just that phase of ANA positivity, from which most people stay fine but a few people progress to lupus. It's, uh, immunologically, it's much, much more complex than um, than I used to think. I used mm-hmm. to think it's just an antibody that doesn't really do any harm. And okay, yeah, it is true that most people don't come to any harm if they're ANA positive, um, but their immune system is profoundly dysregulated, um, almost exactly the same as actually SLA in most respects. Um, and so... Yes, it's it's intriguing. And the other thing I wonder is whether the targets you might use for drugs, if you're going to try and prevent lupus, are different to the ones that you'd use in the established disease, actually. Yeah. You know, and there's an ongoing study in the United States, the SMILE study, that's looking at um, the potential use of hydroxychloroquine to prevent the progression of disease in incomplete lupus. So these are patients who do have more than just a positive ANA. And, you know, so this has been an area of active research in rheumatoid arthritis and hydroxychloroquine did not show efficacy um, in this stop RA study, but it's gonna be really interesting to see what occurs in lupus, which is a different disease. So that's exciting because we've got two themes there that are both talking about curative therapies. One with CAR T cells, the other one with preventing the disease in the first place. So, you know, there was was another session um, that I went to, which I thought was really, you know, sort of interesting because it's something that we don't really think about. And that was lupus in Africa. So there was three speakers, one from Ghana, one from Nigeria, and one from Kenya, Kenya, who presented... um, data on the prevalence and features of lupus in Africa. And I think we're going to be hearing a lot more about this in the future. But the one take home message that I got from this session is that the lupus gradient uh, theory, which has been dogma for years, is probably totally wrong. And that is, you know, so lupus is more severe in patients of African ancestry with more lupus nephritis. And the thought has been that it's really rare and doesn't occur in Africa, and that it's perhaps the um, admixture with other races or the um, environmental factors that are different as patients, uh, as Africans moved away from Africa. And what I learned is that lupus is clearly present and um, severe in lupus in Africa, but that it's different, it, it is different. And in fact, um, you know, ANA positivity, which is now a requirement for the ACR ULAR um, classification criteria, that in some places only 80 to 85% of lupus patients were actually positive for a positive um, ANA. 
um, and that there are also differences in other autoantibody positivity um, in different areas of Africa, um, which also shouldn't be surprising as genetically Africa is more diverse than any other continent in, um, on earth. Um, so there were differences in autoantibody positivity, differences in clinical um, features. Uh, so, I mean, this was truly new to me, you know, and what I get and unexpected, you know, what wasn't unexpected was that, you know, the problems that they have in terms of delays of diagnosis, um, access to drugs. Um, and what I heard was that the five-year patient survival uh, range from 54 to 94%. So that lower range and their renal survival would also have you know, a wide range with a rather low uh, five-year renal survival. Uh, um, that number was um, 48%. And these numbers, the lower limits are really reminiscent of their survival of lupus patients in what I'm gonna call the Western world in the 1960s. So, um, it, you know, I really give credit to these rheumatologists and their building registries and trying to um, increase awareness and education. But I think that this is something that we're going to be hearing about um, in years to come and that we have a lot to learn. I, that is absolutely fascinating i i'm constantly thinking i talk a lot about stratifying trials trying to find the groups of people who are higher risk or lower risk or respond better right. to therapy and actually you always come back to the same thing which is we don't know how to code any of this stuff because it's really when you get terms like asian or black which are just so imprecise that no one knows whether you mean uh, uh, do you mean ancestry or geography and like you know Africa's a big place like you say and Asia's a big place and 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 th these are really and some of these things are actually socioeconomic and you know so it's, I, I, we need to sort it out actually don't we to understand how demographics and diversity because tells us what to do because there are some people who are clearly underserved by the therapies we use yeah. now yes. and, well making an effort to include the African sites in our OMRACT effort, looking at domains and eventually instruments for lupus trials. So it's going to be a lot of fun to see what we learn from that too, because yeah. it is completely, really has been very much overlooked from our perception of what we think the disease is. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Um, then I, I, I did want to um, highlight you know, some abstracts, but you know, depending on time. But there, were, there was a plenary abstract on acute cardiovascular events in autoimmune um, rheumatic diseases. This was um, 0722, um, and this was a really fascinating study in which they highlighted the um, increased risk of autoimmune disease in pregnancy and what they examined cardiovascular events occurring during pregnancy and in the six weeks following pre pregnancy in patients with autoimmune rheumatic disease and found a really outstanding increased risk of cardiovascular events in women with autoimmune disease compared to controls. And in the patients with lupus, there was a six 
fold, an incredible number, increased risk uh, for patients with for cardiovascular event per lupus patient, um, which was even further increased if they had um, antiphospholipid syndrome or nephritis. Mm -hmm. And additionally, um, which I found really surprising, uh, was that this increase in um, venous thrombotic events occurred in the postpartum period. So the risk wasn't finite after actually giving uh, birth. And so that I think that this not only highlights the need for close monitoring during and then particularly after pregnancy, but it does bring up questions of if and how we should be thinking about um, intervening. So I, I thought that this was really um, eye-opening. It's again, it's that it's a bit like your point that you said from Maria's talk, because we think about disease activity and immunosuppression, but actually a lot of mortality and problems in lupus are not just from directly from disease activity, it's complications and cardiovascular risk and glucocorticoid therapy, all these other things that we have to manage well to get the good outcomes. So um uh, my my highlights are going to be quite quick because we've actually already talked about most of them in, the, in that fascinating discussion. Um, but yeah, I picked out Ianalumab. I think that looks impressive. Um, there was an open Yatuzumab abstract sort of suggesting that quite short-term depletion and then allowing B cells to repopulate was kind of okay for lupus nephritis. And then I think one other highlight for me was a session it was actually an immunology session that was about innate immunity in the skin um which is an, and again it's an area that i've worked in a bit that really you know not all your lupus is because of your immune system attacking healthy tissues some of it is actually these tissues themselves playing their own their own role and there are now quite a few people working on themes around that that the immune mechanisms within the skin keratinocytes making interferon kappa as michelle kallenberg's group have published quite extensively neutrophil activation from the Scapelia Gardner group. Um, this molecule, interesting molecule called Vista that seemed to regulate the interferon response in the skin, the kidneys. So I think this is a very interesting theme. And again, it highlights the fact that just targeting B cells and just resetting B cells, is, it, may, it may be useful, but it's not going to be the entire story of lupus. And Unfortunately, whilst that's it, we could probably talk for hours, but I think that's probably all we have time for for today. So um, I hope uh, you've all enjoyed this review of the lupus data from this year's ACR. Um, thanks very much to my co-hosts, Vipika and Cindy, for your, your time and your insights. And it was great to see you both at the Congress this year. As always, I'll encourage you to head on over to the Lupus Forum now. Um, there you can find the publication slide decks summarizing the key publications in Lupus, free for you to download and use for your own teaching and journal clubs. Uh, and have a look at our podcasts. They're another free resource where you can hear some of our interested in insights about these papers. Um, and as always, if you also want to be informed about key data and abstracts presented for other diseases, rheumatoid, psoriatic arthritis, HCL, SPA, then you could look at the Cytokine Signaling Forum, where they've just posted their own review of the conference. So all that remains for me to say is I hope you enjoyed this podcast and best of luck in your clinical practice. Bye. Bye. Bye.